0: to Financial Freedom, educational podcast series hosted by Arvind Venn. These 15-minute or so podcasts are meant to educate and empower listeners about key
1: financial topics towards the road to financial independence, in plain English and without financial jargon. Arvin Venn is independent financial advisor, founder,
0: and CEO of Capital V Group in Cupertino, California. He is regularly featured in leading national financial publications such as Forbes and many others. And now
1: for our host, Arvind Venn. Hello and welcome to this episode of 15 Minutes to Financial Freedom. I'm your host, Arvind Venn. So today's topic is about mortgage rates and what's happening in the housing market and what is really going on with the economy. So I've invited, one of, again, an expert guest for this time. He's Brian Russell, mortgage banker and with a leading bank here in the Bay Area. So Brian will be on very shortly, but I thought let's have a quick look as to what's, what is going on this year. Interest rates have shot up this year, making it even more difficult for first-time home buyers. Rates have gone up as inflation has been up consistently, and the Federal Reserve could no longer brush it off as transitory, that was a favorite word as they have been doing for a while. It'll also be fair to say that the Federal Reserve poured gasoline into the fire in terms of asset inflation over the past few years. Combine that with what happened over COVID, the lot of dislocation, and you've seen this massive asset prices inflation going on, both in the stock market as well as in housing. So the Fed, in my opinion, kept borrowing costs very low for too long. The effect of that was corporations could borrow at very low rates. And an example say, buy back their own stock. And in some cases, could juice up their own stock prices. And that was one probably unintended consequence of these sources. Valuations were also very high in many cases with their underlying fundamentals. And as we all know by now, the stock market has had a rough year so far. When rates go up, investors move away from riskier assets. In terms of housing, low rates and the pandemic-related dislocation took home prices to new highs. Additionally, the Fed has still been buying bonds until recently to the tune of $80 billion per month, totaling almost $1 trillion per year, which is a staggering number. That was called quantitative easing. During this process, the Fed also ended up owning over 40% of mortgage-backed securities, effectively making them the largest residential real estate lender. It is definitely a very interesting times. Now it is time for the Fed. They are now starting quantitative tightening or QT. And this is the other big elephant in the room in addition to rising interest rates. So having said all that, let's get the scoop from Brian because he is living this and breathing this every single day. So welcome, Brian. Great to have you on our podcast today. Thanks for making the time.
0: Oh, absolutely, Arvind. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, no problem. So... Let's let's throw the first question to you. So, what are you seeing in the housing market currently? It looks like things may have cooled in the past few months.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think the favorite word of the industry people right now is shift. They're using this word shift almost exclusively as to what the real estate market is doing. You know, real estate though, uh, we get we get we get wrapped up in kind of our our own little geographic areas, and, and real estate is is full of microclimates. So, you know what. What an area like you know the Silicon Valley is doing from a real estate perspective is you know going to be different than what you might experience in in Portland or you know Utah or Florida etc. So you know generally speaking there has been a shift and there has been a bit of a slowdown in activity, especially with homes on the market. You know that that's what the realtors love to to track is is units on the market, days on the market. You know that'll give you a good indication of kind of the momentum of, of what buyers and sellers are doing and and what we're experiencing now is something we haven't experienced in some time and it's home sitting on the market buyers were we out there shopping you know I have, I have lots of borrowers right i work with the buyer as, as as their lender you know i have the financing so i see the process that they're going through and you know they were having to make decisions to buy properties in minutes and now they're able to take their time and actually start making decisions on properties over the course of several days to even a couple of weeks, that has just been unheard of in, in what we have been experiencing for the last couple of years. So that is a true shift. And, uh, and I think a reflection of, of what's happening, not only with the rate market, but also just with the overall kind of uh, sense of what the economy you know, might be in store for.
1: That's a great. I mean, thanks for qualifying that because I mean, just from a very unscientific view of driving around the area on to work and driving around the Bay Area, I see that houses are sitting on the market longer. I've seen look up some addresses on Zillow. I've seen price cuts that are unheard of. I can, you see people. I, I the what I'll say what I'll say is that the the feeding frenzy of what was going on a few months ago that seems to have stopped, and I think that pretty much. Seems to be in line with what, what you mentioned. So like you said, every real estate is very local. So every market is different. I've been hearing some of the very heated markets like in like in Idaho, the Boise area, in, in Texas and Florida. Things have, have cool have definitely cooled. What do you see in here in Silicon Valley, given that we are the land of stock options and and stock option riches do you uh, and the nasdaq has definitely taken a taken a tumble this year what's your what are you seeing and what 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 do you think thinks how the housing market will be in the valley or the bay area yeah, that that, mm-hmm. that we're, we're silicon valley is is a very unique beast
0: because we do have a lot of money there's a lot of money here even with you know, there's a lot of money here and the purchases that buyers are making are are not just about rates and price. It's a, it is about what the equities market is doing. You know, a lot of these buyers are, are cashing in restock, restricted stock units RSUs from from their employer and utilizing this as part of their down. So they're sensitive to a number of economic factors. But you take the fact that our inventory levels are. And have been incredibly low. You know, just the application of supply and demand. It has created a, a very unique real estate market for us in the Silicon Valley. You know, it, it's funny because the I have a client that I have a client actually right now. They just got into contract, and this I had this conversation with a, another client that's back east, and they they almost fell out of their chair. This 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 buyer said this husband and wife younger couple millennial buying their first home. And, you know, they, they had a lot of questions and, and very nervous of the process, but they're buying their first home and the sales price is $1.75 million. (laughs) (laughs) So if that's your starter home in the Silicon Valley, you know, we're definitely operating in a bubble here that is unique to the, to the entire real estate industry.
1: Right. I was at the LPL annual convention in Denver last month and has a very interesting uh, lunch table conversation with other fellow advisors from different parts of the country. And when I say that the starting home is like, yeah, 1.75 million to 2 million, people almost fell off their chairs when they heard, but sometimes to hear that qualified by someone from the area. It's, yeah, it is is unique. And also, now you mentioned about the younger couple buying this this close to $2 million starter home. What, What do you think will happen if rates continue to rise at least for the next several months to a year? Is it going to make it more difficult for first-time home buyers to get into to home purchase? I mean, overall, and in the valley in particular.
0: Yeah, it, it you know rate, rates obviously have a factor, and it does. It, it definitely
1: you know comes down to
0: your, your your net worth and you know income levels, right? So you know if if w- here's the deal: whether you're a first-time buyer or whether you're an experienced homeowner. If your income could substantiate these prices, then the rates are a little less relevant than what your stock is doing, right? If they're, if they're cashing in stock for their down payment, they're going to be a little more sensitive, I think, what, what the equities market is doing versus the, the rate market. You know, the rates go, the rates have gone up. They've gone up a ton. But what's funny is if we rewind, say, three years, rates, you know, three, four years, you know, gosh, I mean, we can go back over the last decade and we can chart rates. And, you know, being in the 6% wasn't anything overly unique. We just saw some incredibly low rates over that COVID period of time. So, yeah, rates go up. I always use this this rough calculation. And I tell people, you know, every 1% that the mortgage rate goes up, if you want to keep your payment the same, you have to buy about 12% less house. And that's always been kind of a, a rough rule of thumb for me. So, you know, rates are impacting People in general, it just depends on their wherewithal. So when we look up, look you know, more na- nationally, and we see these rates going up, kind of on on, on a more more normalized buyer perspective, right? Because I think our buyers in our area are a little less normal just due to the <laughs> income levels and mm-hmm. the, the price points. But yeah, it, it, it definitely is starting to pull those buyers back out of the market. You know, when you have a a one or two percent increase in rates. And the overall payment is going up twenty percent, twenty five percent on a buyer. That's that's enough to put them out of contention. That that that's enough for, for them to say, you know, what we're going to hold tight. It's funny though because the counter argument is, you know, rates are rents is going up as well. So it's not like they're in a a winning position by not buying because rates are up and waiting. They're still in a, a situation where dealing with inflation and dealing with rising rents is still going to impact them. So I have this conversation with people all the time: is is waiting. Uh, a good thing for them because rates are up, you know what and what are we waiting for, right? You know th- and that's a whole nother conversation for us to get into, arvin for sure, right, right. what are rates going to do? Mm-hmm. but but yeah, I think overall, if you have a budget in place, and that's kind of how I guide a lot of my my clients is we establish the monthly budget and then we back in all the numbers from there. So if they have a budget in place, as rates go up, that impacts that monthly payment and then it, 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 they have to either rebudget, buy less, or you know, take a pause.
1: Right, and that's a, that's a great point. I think, like you said, the Bay Area market is, to put it nicely, it's less than not as normal or or less normal than, than the rest of the country. I think mm-hmm. you had a great point about how the Nasdaq, especially, plays a part in the housing market health or all the or whether whether it's really hot or or less hot. I think one thing that is seen of all mayors in the valley is that. When there's a downturn, initially the hiring is a hiring freeze, but then we, what we saw in 2000 and 2008 where a lot of layoffs happened when people began losing jobs. So that definitely caused a lot of issues. And I think at this point, employment scenario still seems quite good. I'm, seeing, I'm looking at all the numbers. I look at, as a, as a finance person, I look at all the Apple data, streams of data coming in with numbers. So I, look, I see that the employment numbers are still running hot but the layoff numbers are also increasing they're not alarmingly so but every day there's a uh, either large or smaller companies laying off people so that is kind of like the the dark horse to see how that will continue over the next several months is it just that kind of they're just trimming or they're really kind of tightening the belts? I think that that time will tell so that's i mean that's a great point that you made about how the market is. so You just coming back to your to the underwriting process and mortgage itself, are there more restrictions? Do they have a higher bar to clear for home buyers now as the mortgage underwriting bar being raised higher because of higher rates? Uh,
0: You know, the, the pendulum has swung so so to the conservative side on underwriting guidelines from that 2008 debacle we had that. The guidelines are pretty set and they're 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 pretty they're pretty tight to begin with. So rising rates aren't going to necessarily cause lenders to even tighten harder on their guidelines. The only thing that that I will tell you that I just from experience and I've seen these kind of ups and downs, you know, doing this, you know, what two and a half decades now, the first thing to, to get tighter with lenders when you start seeing a cooling off in real estate is loan to values that's where the generosity of higher loan-to-values from lenders starts to get clipped. Uh, With with home value starting to soften and not not appreciating at the rate that they were before, there's a risk that uh, the lender could get themselves in a position with a a much higher loan-to-value than they're comfortable with. So the first thing they start clipping at is, okay, maybe a 90% combined loan-to-value isn't where they want to be, and they'll bring it back to say 85% max combined loan-to-value. You'll start seeing that first in a cooling off market. The guidelines for underwriting, they're they're very conservative right now. And, And I don't think they need to be any more conservative because the rates will just dictate whether or not the borrower can qualify. So if the rates go up and the payment goes up, that means their qualifying ratios go up and they have those qualifying ratios kind of set in their guidelines. And once they exceed those, they're just unapprovable at that stage.
1: That's a great point. I mean, you're right. I think the norm, the standards were probably very lax pre-2008, which is what cost in part, caused the great financial crisis. And then after that, there's been a lot of tightening. And like you said, it'll become self-selective if due to higher rates, if they can't qualify, then pretty much that's, then that's a no-go. But you know, the one thing that I look with interest at some of this data that comes out, like the, the rent versus buy numbers. So Obviously, in the middle of America, the southern states, these rent versus buy number, they're fairly close. But whereas in, in, in the West Coast, especially out here, the especially for first time buying, even with rates not at where they're right now, if you add everything together, the, the property taxes the and just the mortgage and interest payment, generally speaking, they seem to be higher than the rents, even the rents are pretty high out here. What's your comment on that?
0: Yeah, you know, you know, home ownership. It, 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 I don't think it can be classified simply by okay, what's my payment for owning a house and what's my payment for renting a house, and whichever one's better is the direction we should go. You know, there's other, there's other, you know, values to home ownership. You know, just simply, you know, pride in ownership, right, having your primary residence, but also the fact that over time, and we can chart this easily, over time, real estate does go up in value. We can see that, you know, with enough time, the the value of real estate goes up. So there's there's something there that you you don't get equity growth in a, in a rental. Additionally, you know, out here on the West coast, and I did a great video on this recently regarding, you know, it was, it was kind of a kind of tongue in cheek where I said, you know, the, the, the IRS helps helps you make your mortgage payment. And of course they don't, but you know, there's the the tax laws allow for certain deductions and not to get too deep into that. Mm -hmm. What I was talking about is the standard deduction versus an itemized schedule a deduction. And I got a lot of feedback from a lot of parts in, in the Midwest, in, in the middle part of the country where they're like, yeah, this doesn't apply to us. You know, we take the standard deduction, it always wins out. So home ownership isn't necessarily the way to go. Well, but you come out here to our area where, you know, you get your interest deductions up to $750,000 loan amount. That's, that's, you know, 4X what the loan amount average is, say, in Utah or, or Idaho or Kansas, Right. So, Mm -hmm. so you you have more interest deductions there and and we we tend to have more robust tax returns out here where the borrowers can, can actually see additional benefits of home ownership versus renting. So, you know, there's, there's a lot to it also, you know, paying down, paying rent, you're in essence. And I like to use this analogy when you're renting a property, your interest rate is hundred percent, (laughs) right? Because it's all rent and it's all going to, to somebody else. Whereas even though you're, you're paying a, a you know, higher interest on a mortgage right now and your payment might be slightly higher, well, there's principal reduction. So you're paying down that mortgage every month and you, know, y- you have some of those deductions, potential deductions that you would have as a renter. So you, know, you have to look beyond just the, the comparison of, of, of housing payments to determine if it makes sense to you. But I think overall, I think we could agree that owning real estate over time has really, it hasn't hurt anybody or certainly doesn't hurt, you know, doesn't hurt many, that's for
1: sure. Yeah. I think, yeah, the number is 60, 63 or 65% of American households are, are homeowners, right? So definitely that has been part of the American dream, which is what causing consternation to a lot of people because they are unable to get into the dream or get the first steps just given the, the higher prices. So, yeah, so that's a very good point. The, uh, as we're coming closer wrapping up here, so... So, my question for you would be So, what about quantitative tightening? Now we have rates going up and we have seen some softening in the market. But there's the other elephant in the room, which is quantitative tightening, which is instead of buying those $80 billion worth of bonds every year, now the Fed is now talking, is actually taking action in starting to unwind those bonds. Do you see any effect, or what's your take on that?
0: Yeah, you know, that's that's a great question. And I'm still doing my share of research on QT right now because this is a unique scenario that we're in. I mean, in essence, you know, qualitative tightening is just, an, an you know, raising the short-term interest, the Fed funds rate is a tightening money, you know, you're tightening the money supply. Quantitative tightening is the same thing, you know, and, and there's a certain, I think there was a calculation that was being done, you know, how much, um you know, how much of these bonds need to hit the market for them to translate into, how much of a rate rise on the on the Fed funds rate? Like, you know, how do they correlate to one another? Um, because both of them are doing the same thing. And right now, we we are able to ch- you know to in essence kind of track what the rate what the Fed funds rate is doing. But now you're right with this new addition of of of, of you know a saturation potentially to the market with with you know the Fed has to, has to unwind a pretty large balance sheet. What is it up to? You know, eight over eight trillion dollars that's that's got to be done now the interesting thing for them is is releasing you know it's all about whether or not there there's a market for it and there's a lot of analysts out there that think there is a growing market for what the for what the the fed's going to offer out into into the marketplace and so that could be a good thing and we may not see a double whammy there on long term interest rates but you know there's another thing that's pulling against long-term interest rates right so what's the whole point of of a tightening money supply it's to control inflation that's that's the feds mm-hmm. you know, the Fed, right that's their job right control inflation mm-hmm. and long-term interest rates are always going to price in relation to inflation so you know when, when and i get calls like this every single week it, you know, when, when there's a new story out about the feds raising the rates you know most people don't really know exactly what that means they're not raising the mortgage rates. You know, they're raising the Fed funds rate. And of course, that's going to translate to prime. And what is prime tied to? And you start looking at credit cards and car loans and personal loans and equity lines. And as those things get more expensive, borrowers tend to stop using them or using them less. And so there's a good way to pull money out of the market. So that's what the Fed's agenda is, right? And they're doing this because they need to try to bring down inflation. Well, if inflation is up, long-term mortgage rates are going to be up because they're just trying to price their asset to make money. Now, when they start seeing inflation temper flatten out and, and then, you know, obviously, hopefully start coming down, I believe you're going to see long term mortgage rates doing the same. There's no reason for them to continue to climb it if inflation is coming down. Now, the only other thing that's that's out there being discussed is if inflation remains stubborn and we can, you know, at a later podcast, we could talk about stagflation and some of the fears mm-hmm. of that, but if inflation tends to be a little stubborn and, uh, and, and run for a bit longer than what the Fed's comfortable with, they're going to have to get more aggressive, right? Right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the more aggressive they get it, it is, is this soft landing that you hear, you know, talked about not in the cards, you know, who knows? You know, I always look at what the Fed's doing is more like bumper cars. They're bouncing from, from a good <laughs> position to a bad position and they're mm-hmm. bouncing back and forth off the walls. well. I think if, if this thing gets if inflation gets as stubborn as, as it's looking right now because there has been a tremendous amount of money pumped into the economy then pushing us into a recession might be the only thing to get this thing re- reset. Now, who knows if it's going to happen? I can I can cite, you know, five analysts that say it's going to happen and five that say it won't happen and they both have compelling arguments.
1: Right, right. But
0: yeah. I can tell you from a mortgage rate perspective and this is what I tell my clients if we do fall into a recession, be prepared to refi because every recession we've ever fallen into, mortgage rates plummet. So that's an interesting, you know, catalyst to home ownership when those rates come down for the buyers that haven't necessarily pulled the trigger. Could be an opportunity for them down
1: the road. That's a great point. I mean, right now people did refi; they bought into higher prices. So yeah, this is there's a lot of fodder for not even one, maybe a couple of podcasts you to- Ryan, because there's a lot of discussions here, and I think he has some great points about about just the economy related to housing. I look at finance and investment and look at all the economic and market data, but the housing is definitely another asset class that is less correlated to the housing market, I mean, to the stock market. So definitely that makes part of the diversification of assets. That housing also has its own what I call ecosystem, and that's what we've been talking about today. This has been Very informative. I'm sure that my listeners are going to like this a lot. And also, we definitely need to bring you on back again. But let me make a couple of disclaimers so to keep my compliance analysts happy. This podcast is just for educational purposes, should not be considered financial legal or tax advice. And uh, Brian Russell and Flagstar and Capital We Group and LPL Financial are not affiliated. And having said that, again, Brian, it was a pleasure having you with us today. It was very informative. And thanks for all the able insights. I'll look forward to having you join us again sometime soon.
0: Thank you, Arvind. It's been a pleasure.
1: So we look forward to seeing you soon and you tuning in at the next podcast. You can also read more about us at www.capitalvgroup.com or call us at 408-725-7122 or you can like us or read more about us on Twitter and on Facebook.
0: Arvind Ven is a registered representative with advisory services and securities offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA and SIPC. The opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. The information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific tax issues with a qualified tax advisor. Financial planning offered through Capital V Group, a registered investment advisor and a separate entity from LPL Financial.